Welcome to the Radical Lifestyle Podcast, brought to you by Generation to Generation, where you'll be inspired by the past, equipped for the present, and prepared for the future as we engage in conversations with people from around the world. If you've been inspired by the guests that we've had on the podcast, please like, subscribe, comment, hit notification bells, whatever you can do on the platforms that you're listening on, so that more people have the opportunity of hearing these and engaging in our community. Hello everyone, our guest today is Gidon Ariel. Gidon, for people who don't know who you are, could you just say a bit about where you're from and what you do? Um, I am Gidon Ariel. Right now I live in a small community called Ma'alei Hever, which is just outside of Hebron in Israel, uh, in the Judean hills. And I live actually just uh, overlooking the uh, Judean desert there. You asked me where I'm from. What else did you ask me? What do I do? Yeah, what do you do? <laughs> well, I'm sure like many of your guests, I do a lot of things. But uh, the main thing that I do is I run an organization called Root Source, which is a platform for pro-Israel Christians and Jews to engage with each other, primarily by studying together the sources, texts, and concepts that we share. How's that? And uh, for people that listen to this, they say, we like Gidon, we want to find out more, we want to see what he's putting out there, where can they do that? Well, again, my website is called Root Source, that's www.root-source.com. But chances are that if you Google Gidon Ariel, that's Gidon, G-I-D-O-N, Ariel, also five letters, A-R-I-E-L. And even if you misspell it, Google is forgiving then you'll find me. Okay, and I know we're going to talk about something else today, uh, which we'll get to, but for everyone listening, I will put those websites in the description box so that they're there ready for you to go and check out. Um, Gidon, could we just uh, go back a bit to, how did you end up in Israel? I know that I saw on your website, I think it was that you made Alia, and maybe you could just explain what Alia is for people that don't know, uh, but you made Alia at a very young age and without your parents. Can you just talk a bit about that and how that came about? You, 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 uh, you spoil. You were you gave a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I I grew up in a uh, in a relatively Jewish neighborhood, or at least it felt that way. Felt in a, up in a Jewish community in New York. Uh, my family was not all that observant. But by the time I was, I think it was in first grade, probably due to my older brothers uh, requesting it, we were studying, we, my younger sister, two years younger than me, and I uh, were enrolled in a uh, Jewish uh, day school instead of a nearby public school. I think it might have been because my mother was teaching there at the time. So uh, tuition costs less. Anyway, so I I was in this uh, observant Jewish day school. It's called the yeshiva, uh, but uh, I wasn't observant, and frankly, most of the kids in the school weren't so observant either. This was in the uh, this is in the early seventies. Um, uh, by the time fifth grade rolled around, probably my mother wasn't teaching there anymore, so tuition went up. And my parents probably decided for financial reasons to take us out of that Jewish day school and put us into uh, public school. 
Well, I didn't like that because I had all my friends in the Jewish day school. But what can you do, you know, when you're uh, 10 years old or 12 years old, however old I was, there's not much you can do when your parents tell you to do something. So I spent the year in that public school. But during that year, I realized I want to uh, focus more on my Jewish identity and, and take it more seriously. And so I I probably cried that whole year. And, I, and my parents put me back into the Jewish day school in sixth grade. By then, I had made a decision, as I said, that I would be a more religious Jew. And, of course, that was probably, I was 11, if it was 6th grade, I was probably 12. So, usually the bar mitzvah at 13 happens um, in 7th grade, more or less. So, that's probably when I had my bar mitzvah. Um, that year, in 6th grade, I was uh, also lucky enough to be exposed to a Jewish Zionist youth movement called Bnei Akiva, um, and I, uh, I loved it, and uh, I was pretty much in Bnei Akiva for those three years, sixth grade, seventh grade, um, yeah, I guess four years, sixth grade. No, 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 I think what happened was that at the end of sixth grade, I went to, it doesn't really matter exactly what happened, for three or four years, I was spending most of my time at that Bnei Akiva clubhouse, and by the time ninth grade came around, uh, I was already in a, uh, a Jewish high school, but it wasn't so good. And my parents and I decided that we'd have to decide where I would go for 10th grade. And my parents actually surprised me and asked me if I would like to go to Israel for 10th grade. So I jumped at the chance, and I've pretty much been here ever since. How was it for your parents then when you decided... Uh, do you know what? I'm going to move there. Well, according to my memory, and given this is a long time ago, it was my parents who offered that to me. Uh. Now, I'm not, I, I guess I just have to thank God that uh, he put it into their minds to do that. But you see, I'd been going to this B'nai Akiva summer camp for at least three years, or two, three years, something like that. And I loved it. And I said, I bet when I move to Israel, it's just going to be like that camp all year round. <laughs> and that's that's pretty much what it was and still is, I think. So when you when you went to Israel then, um, where did you go? Who did you stay with? I mean, what happened from that moment? So what what happened was is that my father was a Holocaust survivor uh, from Hungary. And when he finished, what am I saying? When he uh, survived the Holocaust, uh, together with others of his friends, he incredibly, not so incredibly, but it, but coincidentally, was also a member of this B'nai Akiva youth movement way back in the 40s in Hungary. Wow. So uh, when the Holocaust was over, and, and uh, again, the idea of, of B'nai Akiva was to move to Israel, still is. So, and there were other things. They were very much into Torah, learning Torah. In those days, they were very much also into kibbutz. But uh, in any case, he was a counselor. He was, I think, about 18 at the time. So maybe, maybe 16. And uh, he went together with his campers or, or his, his counselees to Israel made Aliyah from B'nai Akiva, and he ended up going to 
a yeshiva high school in Israel where the where the where the one of the teachers ended up being the principal of the uh, high school that I ended up going to wow. in Israel. So when that when the, when we decided that I would come to Israel, then my father naturally thought that I would go to the high school that he went to. But all of a sudden, he saw that this old teacher of his was now the principal of uh, the, the school that I would attend. The name of the school was Nativ Meir. And uh, the rabbi, the, the, the principal of that school was Rabbi Arye Bina. And, and somehow my father found out that Rabbi Arye Bina, no, I think I know, it's because I was going to move to Israel through Aliyah HaNoar through youth aliyah. You asked me before, what is aliyah? Aliyah moving, means moving to Israel. So they still have this, but certainly in those days, and certainly in the in the time of my father, they had this thing called youth aliyah, where they would help youth to make aliyah. And so when we, we met with the representative of youth aliyah in New York, and we said we want to we want to go to I want to go to high school in Israel. He said, Ah, I got a perfect idea for you in the TV year. And the principal of that school is coming to New York. And so you can interview with him then. So my father brought me there. I prepared for the interview by by polishing up a little bit on my Hebrew. I didn't know much Hebrew then. A little bit of my Torah studies. I didn't know too much Torah either then. But what by the time we came to the interview. My father said, Rabbi Bina, I know you remember me from way back when. I said, yeah. So the whole interview, he was smoothing with my father, and I was just sitting there and nodding and smiling. And at the end, he, you know, he asked me a few questions or something. I said, don't worry about it. You're in. <laughs> you mentioned that uh, some of the work you do now is is helping to facilitate conversations between the Jewish community, Christians. Now, Christians and Jews, we have a bit of a checkered past, even today. Um, have you always been open to those conversations? What, what has your attitude been towards Christians? Um, and how did you end up at, at the point where you wanted to actually do this uh, for a job? Excellent question. So when I moved to Israel again, I was in high school, and I was a pretty normative uh, Israeli religious high school kid, except that it took me a few years to, to learn Hebrew. Um, and then at the end of uh, the uh, high school, I went to the military. We had a program, we still have a program in Israel, since, since conscription is mandatory, then uh, Israel tries its best, the IDF tries its best to make different um, for, uh, frameworks for as many people as they can so that more people will feel good in the army. So the framework that I went to is called the HESDER program. HESDER means an arrangement. And it's an arrangement that instead of spending three years for your mandatory service, um, in uh, you do we do five years. But instead of doing three years of active duty, we only do a year and a half. And the other three and a half years were in yeshiva and a more advanced yeshiva than the high school that I went to. And that was that was amazing. I would get up like at six o'clock in the morning. I would study God's Torah, God's Bible, and many other Jewish subjects from about six o'clock in the morning 
till about 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock at night. It was just unbelievable. For about six years I was there just drinking up God's word. It was incredible. But at one point, not but, at one point during my uh, service, I don't know if I was on a furlough from the yeshiva part from the or from the army part, it doesn't really matter. I was walking down the streets of Jerusalem and I saw a sign on a building across the street. So I crossed the street in order to read the sign because that's my hobby, to read the street signs in Jerusalem. You know, you can get a uh, bachelor's degree in Jewish history just by reading the street signs in Jerusalem. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, this was not a street sign. It was the sign of an office, and it said it at ICEJ. And ICEJ, I learned, stands for, or it was written underneath the, the uh, acronym, ICEJ stands for International Christian Embassy Jerusalem. And I said, what the heck is this? Christian? I know what Christians are. They're the ones with that, uh, with that spotty history that you mentioned before, Andrew. Um, yet embassy means friendship. So are the Christians our enemies? As we had, we hadn't really been taught. I never, I was never taught that Christians are my enemies, but it was clear that through the thousands of years of history, so many, uh, a, um, a crusades, so many pogroms, this, it was just clear that even though if we met a Christian on the street, obviously most of the people in those days in New York, probably till this day, are actually Christians, or at least people who identify as Christians. They might not be your kind of Christians. But, uh, I, you know, I wasn't afraid that uh, they were going to uh, bludgeon me just because I happened to be a Jew, even though that happened. There was, there was anti-Semitism. I didn't. I was not the victim of an, too much anti-Semitism, or, or as much as I could. A little bit, you know, once I went with my uh, Bnei Akiva group to a weekend and, and some uh, some Christian kids started throwing snowballs at us or something like that. It wasn't, it wasn't such a big deal. But um, but in general, I got a liberal uh, I, 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 um, education from, I was brought up, you know, loving other people. And so I, I didn't feel that, I, I didn't feel that my, my God, Christians are, are the enemy. But on the other hand, <laughs> You did feel that a little bit after 2,000 years of such experience. And here was Christians saying, no, we want to be friends with you. So I took some brochures from the ICEJ, and I said, my gosh, what's going on? These are Christians who really want to extend a hand of friendship to Jews and to Israel. So I learned in kindergarten that if somebody extends a hand of friendship to you, then you... Grasp that hand and you return that friendship. So little by little, I, I tried to, to learn a little bit more about uh, Christians, specifically ministries in Jerusalem who were there to, to uh, bless Israel and to make friends. So that's what I did for a few years until little by little I realized I was, after a while I started working in high tech, in, in IT, but uh, as a technical writer. But I said, you know what? What am I going to spend the rest of my life uh, writing about how component A interacts with component B? That sounds like a little boring. I'd much rather uh, spend my time focusing on this, what seemed to me to be a very important thing, that 
So many Christians, again, by far not all Christians, but millions of Christians are interested in establishing a relationship of friendship with Jews. And I would say dozens of Jews want to establish relationships with Christians. So it's a little bit lopsided and they need my help. <laughs> Actually, on that, did you get any pushback from your Jewish friends, people that you knew, because of you wanting to extend out the hand on the conversation? I, I, at some point, I learned that it's wise to talk about things that your interlocutor, the person that you're having a conversation with, wants to talk about and refrain from talking about the things that they don't want to talk about. Imagine that. <laughs> In other words, I want to stay friendly with people and not, and not open up a new front of, of war or battle or something like that. So I didn't talk to my Jewish friends too much about that. Uh, when I, I was living in that time in Malaya Dumim, not just outside of Jerusalem, my very good friends who would kid me from time to time heard about it, and they would kid me about it maybe, but it wasn't like they say, oh my gosh, get on, you're, you're daring to engage with Christians. What? First of all, are you become a Christian yourself? And second of all, what are you, crazy? All those Christians hate us. They didn't say that. They just said, ah, oh, get on, you You just want to, I don't know, remember what they what they joked about, but they joked about everything with me. So, <laughs> But uh, when I moved, I'll, I'll fast forward a little bit to where I live today. It's a much more religious, Jewish religious community. And they're much more, uh, care, uh, not careful, but they're, they're, they're more worried, let's say, about, about Christians. And they're more worried, what, what does that mean? You can be a friend with so I don't I don't talk about it too much. My my friends here, by now they probably know that I do this. But when I first moved here, they asked me what do I do. I said I work on the on the internet. Said, okay, <laughs> that's enough for us. But Aaron, um, Gideon, what 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 should they worry about? That's a great question. Um, one that I've uh, spent time uh, lecturing in Hebrew, to uh, other Israelis, to Jewish Israelis, of course, because I think that as much as my uh, life's passion and goal is to bring uh, Jew uh, Jewish knowledge, Jewish wisdom, and Jews, really, to, to, for a relationship to Christians, it's important to me to find more Jews to come into this sphere of engaging with Christians. But uh, it's tough because Jews and Christians, as Andrew hinted before, have a very long history of animosity. You know, in the old days, uh, I'm not going to spend our time now going through an entire uh, history lesson of... Uh, of uh, of that of all that time, but I think that uh, that what Jews are most concerned with, worried about, and uh, uncomfortable with are two things. It's the violent history that uh, Christians have towards Jews. I will mention that at the very beginning of Christianity. It was the uh, Jews against the Christians. The Christians were on the 
were on the receiving end, maybe not of violence, but certainly, and probably also violence, but but certainly of animosity, because, because when Christianity started, of course, it was a Jewish sect. There were many sects of Judaism at that time, about 2,000 years ago. And uh, if I can say mainstream Judaism at the time, which is a little hard to say, because like I said, there were so many different sects, you know, the Pharisees, the, 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 the Sadducees, all that kind of stuff. But after the, the um, towards the end of the Second Temple period, when the Temple was destroyed about 70 AD, then uh, the Jews pretty much, uh, the, the smaller sects uh, started to, uh, I don't know, disappear, but become less important. And the main sect became the rabbinic sect, uh, which was an outgo of the Pharisee sect. Of course, what I understand as Pharisee is not what most Christians understand as Pharisees. It's not so important right now. But these uh, Jesus-following uh, Jews were just another uh, aberrant. Uh, is that the right word? In other words, they were, they were not... Uh, um, the normative Jews, and so the normative Jews were saying, "Guys, get with the program. Stop it with this, with this, with this Jesus stuff." But after a few hundred years, then uh, Constantine decided to turn the entire Roman Empire Christian, and those, and of course, before that. Uh, the, the the Jewish Christians, the, the original Christians decided, you know, we should try to expand this and not just be a Jewish sect, but let's try to be a, a Gentile uh, religion as well. And so that's what they did. They the, that uh, during those years, the, the Jewish, the, the, the mainstream Jews were still uh, not too happy about Christians of any kind. They probably cared less about the the Gentile Christians. Which by at some point there were pr practically no Jewish Christians left. It was it was exclusively a Gentile religion, but they remembered that hey, you know what? Those mainstream Jews they didn't like us. Now's our chance to be against them. So I would say that for 100 to 200 years, both the Jews and the Gentile Christians. Again, I you know. I, Academics would say that I'm, I'm painting this with too wide a brush, but run with me uh, for now. The yeah, Gentile Christians from about 150 AD till about 300 AD, and you had the you had the exiled Jewish Jews, the mainstream Jews, rabbinic Jews, who uh, were also trying to manage against the um, Roman Empire. The Romans, of course, hated the Jews. We we revolted against them in about 150 AD, and they uh, succeeded in, ba in bashing our revolt, and they spread us all over the place and didn't give us too much uh, love. And the Christians, one way or another, also weren't doing too good because the um, Rem Roman Empire was uh, a pagan one until Constantine came around and said, I want my entire uh, empire to convert to, to Christianity. So that was great. And now, and since then, Christianity has been on top. And they remembered, one way or another, 
how bad the Jews had treated them, or maybe it wasn't a question of memory, it was just a question of good old-fashioned anti-Semitism or whatever reason it was. Anyway, the Christians were anti-Semitic towards us when they were the major religion, and uh, that's the reason why we don't like it. And of course, you had uh, some of the other things like like the Crusades, where the where Christians um, slaughtered Jews all, all the way to uh, to, uh, to on their way towards the Holy Land, and in the Holy Land as well. And uh, throughout European history, most of European history was Europe. Europe was Christian, and. Uh, they uh, kept on uh, running pogroms against uh, Jews all those years. So, so anti-Semitic and vile uh, anti-Semitism, including vi extremely violent anti-Semitism, is a very strong Jewish memory towards Christians. But then you had part of the the possibly a reason for that anti-Semitism, and that is the refusal of Jews in the main part to convert to Christianity. So at first, this is the way I tell my story, I'm sticking to it, Christians said, come on, be Christian, come convert, accept Jesus, everything's great. With love, we love you. But when we didn't want to do that, they said, you don't want to do it, then now we'll show you. We showed you the, the heart, now we'll show you the sword. And uh, for example, Luther Martin Luther, he at first said, oh, let's love the Jews. Through our love, they will surely understand that they must accept Christ. But after a few decades that it wasn't working, he became one of the worst anti-Semites in Christian history. And he was the, and some of his, some of his writings became the basis for Nazi Germany. I'll bet that some of, I bet that you've discussed this in the past on your podcast. Yeah. So there you go. When our choice is either to be violently, violently, anti-Semitically um, uh, uh, hit by Christians, or to try to be to change us from from Jews, which we want to do somehow, <laughs> to to Christians, which we thank you very much, no thanks, but but keep on doing. So that's it between between. Violent anti-Semitism and, um, and and not forced conversion, but 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 you know get the, get the point. We're not interested. That's something that Christians have difficulty accepting. Some Christians and something that the Jews aren't going to give up. Now there are plenty of Jews who are who who are who and who have converted, but that only makes religious Jews even more uh, against Christians. Ah, you want to be friends with Christians? We know why those Christians want to be our friends. They want to convert us to Christianity. We can we consider that what, what's called replacement theology. You basically want to get rid of all Jews. Your best 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 uh, picture would be that all the Jews, all the all the people, but including all the Jews, would become Christians, and we'll forget about all of our Jewish history, just like so many. Christians today, their grandfathers, great-great-grandparents, whatever, were Jews, even rabbis. And today, those Christians are totally impossible to differentiate between them and any other Gentile uh, Christian. 
So you basically want to, you basically want to destroy Judaism and, and erase Judaism. They say, and people say, yeah, because God replaced the Jewish people with the Christian people. That's called replacement theology. And and obviously Jews don't even barely even know that phrase, but they obviously say, What are you talking about? You're basically saying, I want to replace you, Gidon. You're now married to Deborah. One day we'll come, we'll, we'll replace you with Gregory, and that'll be the best thing. What are you talking about? I'm married to my wife, not some Gregory. <laughs> so so that so the Jews don't even but but Jews understand that you want to change this. And many Christians also, and I'm guessing you also are familiar with replacement theology and recognize that that's the worst kind of anti-Semitism. Because we basically want to obliviate, if that's a good word, um, Judaism and, and, and Jews. In other words, if a Jew stops being a Jew, then that Jew has disappeared. He's now not a Jew. So the, the Jew who was a Jew is not there anymore. So, so I spent a lot more time than I usually like talking about why Jews don't like Christians. I usually like talking about why we're at a new day today, and there are more and more and more Jews who do like Christians. And hopefully, and I, and I certainly see that there are more and more Christians who like Jews, who their relationship on, about Jews is based on mutual respect, not about, oh... Look at that target over there, that Jew. I'll, I'll figure out a way and he'll become a Christian. No, leave that up to God. God will decide when or if Jews will come to faith in Jesus. Until then, you take your great commission and don't do it through your mouth. Do it through your deeds. That's, that's the way I see. If, if somebody says, wow, you're such a nice guy, I want to be like you, then you've done your, your job. But if not, then, uh, then God has a plan for every single human being. He has a, I believe that he has a plan for every single blade of grass. But we don't have to go too, too deep into that. Certainly, and, and certainly since the state of Israel has been has been uh, um, established, and you see how much God loves the Jewish people. Everybody who says in 1900, 1800, 1400, God has given up on the Jewish people. He hates them. He's, they're never going to come back. Wandering Jew and all that. No, they've come back. They are fulfilling all the prophecies of the of the Bible against all odds. So. Many Christians are saying, my gosh, I guess it's true. The Bible is true. God promised the Jews that he'd come back, and here they are, they're coming back. God promised it, and it's happening. That is, for many of my Christian friends, this is strengthening their faith. Because they say, because they say that if God promised the Jews that they would come back, and he fulfilled his promise, well, God promised me that I would be saved. And I can believe that because he is a God, he is a promise-fulfilling God. That is, Some of the stuff that I've learned on the way. That is really powerful. I just want to highlight one thing you said, and we don't have to go into it more, but you said the replacement th theology is the worst type of anti-Semitism. And, and I, for people listening, 
I just want to highlight that um, mm. that phrase. Yeah, and we could talk for hours about lots of points that you've brought yeah. up and people listening will have various understandings of the different things that you've just said. Um, but those, those are for us to discuss in future podcasts that we, that we do together and we can dive into some of those uh, in more detail. You know, we've, we've mentioned the Holocaust um, and the, the history between Jews and Christians and how even Luther's, Martin Luther's teachings were, were of inspiration to Hitler. Um, and and you've, you, you've got something you're doing at the minute and it, maybe you could talk a bit about that and um, how it started, what the inspiration is between, uh, behind the initiative that you're doing. With pleasure, just give me a second here. I'm trying to uh, bring up the website so I can uh, read about it a little bit. The uh, um, Just give me a second here. Sorry about that. No worries. There we go. Light. Okay. So here's a story while this is loading. Yes. There you go. Sorry about that. No, you're good. Um, as I'm sure all of your listeners know, the Holocaust happened in the 40s, late uh, in the late 30s. Um, and it started, arguably, at an, at an, a, an incident, uh, a pogrom called Kristallnacht. Kristallnacht, you can all look it all up, is also uh, translated as the Night of Broken Glass. Because what happened was, is that uh, in Nazi Germany... That had been that had been growing and building for years and years until 1938. Um, in 1938, the uh, the Nazis decided to launch a pogrom, and in that pogrom, they they shattered the glass windows. That's why it's called the Night of Broken Glass of hundreds of Jewish-owned stores and hundreds of synagogues. And on, by, on, on the way, they injured, they attacked and injured hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Jews and killed that night about 100 Jews as well. That was the beginning of the Holocaust because after that, Hitler took a look around and said, okay, how is the world responding to what we just did? And the world didn't respond strongly enough to say, we are going to stand up for those Jews. So now Hitler said, okay, we can go ahead with plan A, which is the final solution. And that ended up being that they murdered 6 million Jews uh, in, in uh, a span of about four or five years. Incredible. So I was talking to a, uh, a friend of mine who ended up that her father was a Holocaust survivor. Not only was he a Holocaust survivor, he survived Kristallnacht also, the night of broken glass. And she said, wait a second. If the Nazis tried to destroy the Jews and destroy synagogues on that night of Kristallnacht, which was November, November uh, uh, 9th, 1938. They tried to turn the lights out on that night. So what we need to do to counter that 
is to keep the lights on in our synagogues on November 9th. She came up with this idea about 10 years ago, and throughout those years, little by little, hundreds of synagogues uh, observe that night, keep the light on, and they say, you tried to turn the lights off, we're going to show you, and the lights are going to stay on in synagogues forever. Now, when I heard about this project from my friend, first of all, I heard about it on November 8th last year. So I quickly ran to the, the person in charge of my own synagogue and I said, we got to keep the lights on tomorrow night. He said, oh, why? Because it's crystal night and we keep the lights on. It's a great idea. So he turned the lights on and that was easy. But immediately I said, wait a second, I've been working with Christians for over a decade. This is an incredible way for Christians to stand up and be counted as supporters and friends of Israel, of Jews, and commemorate the Holocaust. So I decided, it took me a little while to figure it out and everything like that, I would lead a project like this for my Christian friends. And the name of the project is Light Up the Church. Just like the synagogues are keeping their lights on, but this is not just the synagogues. Today we say Christians must stand at a time such as this. And this is the time for Christians to stand with their Jewish friends and their Jewish brethren. And one way to establish that and to do it is just to keep the lights on on November 9th, 2022. And for that reason, I've created the website called www.lightupthechurch, all one word, .org. Lightupthechurch.org. That is a place where Christians who recognize how important this idea is, they can go, they can sign up, it's all free, and they send in a, a picture of their church when the lights are off at night or during the day, and on November 9th, they keep the lights on, send us a picture with the lights on at night, and with God's help, we will have hundreds of churches doing this already this first year, and next year, maybe thousands. So that is the plan. Mm. Yeah. The, the best plans are often the simplest, and I would challenge people from churches, Christians from churches, that with a simple thing like not turning the lights off for a night, you can make a big impact. I would also throw this challenge out, and this isn't Gidon doing it, it's, it's, it's us doing it. If you are not willing... Say it! And cut that bit out <laughs> and I would challenge Christians churches that if you are not willing to leave lights on for one night to ask yourself why I believe this isn't just um, 
just standing with the Jewish people on this one night, but I think for many who hear this simple, simple request, it can be a defining moment where you have to decide, I'm willing to, to leave my light on or I'm not willing to leave my light on. And I think it is going to cause people to think, where am I standing? Yeah, I mean, we we often see all over social media things like um, never again, hashtag never again, and, and things like that, and which is great, you know, put those out there. Um, but, you know, where's the action, which is with those words, when we put things like that on social media? And, you know, we know friends, uh, I know for us, we have done things we have acted in a way to stand with Jewish people and paid a price for doing that and you know maybe there's people listening they say well I don't know what to do what what action can I take well here is a small action a first step that you can take which is being proactive in showing your support uh, in wanting to stand alongside the Jewish community uh, so this is a really good opportunity for people to get involved start taking your first step of action uh, in being proactive in standing alongside our, our, our Jewish friends, brothers, sisters, uh, all over all over the world. And uh, if you're listening and you're saying, "Yes, yeah, sure, I, I'm totally on board," don't let it finish. Then pass this on to other people you know, to other churches you know. I think, um, yeah. So don't let's be complacent. Sure, we can do it. No get other people on board doing it and I repeat again from our perspective this isn't just about turning the light on for one night this is about people making a decision taking a step um, because there is no such new thing as neutrality in the eyes of God yeah and why stop at just the churches you know, uh, yeah. light the churches up yeah. but you have home groups people that meet in people's houses light yeah. your houses up even just your own family could put your home's lights on during that night um, don't just think well this is a church thing no you you know we believe we are the church the church isn't a building it's not a structure we the people are the church and so wherever you are whether it's your church building the structure or your home uh, where you live you can all be a part of of this initiative how about this i was also thinking of organizations like a ymca or something like that or but i just now realized since we said that not only synagogues were destroyed on kristallnacht uh, but also jewish businesses if you are a business owner then how about you keep your lights on on that yeah. night as well yeah stand stand for your principles yeah yeah. yeah, I really like it. Um, I just want to say, just want to um, say a bit more about what I started to say, that you cannot say, I'm neutral. There is no such thing as neutrality. I think this, new, this initiative takes away neutrality. You either do it or you don't do it. Simple thing, turn the switch on, turn the switch off, simple. But neutrality always sides with the abuser it, it there, there isn't a neutrality so i don't want anybody listening to think well we're just neutral that no, no you're not 
there is no such thing as, as neutrality. You can't say, I'm not, because you need to know that if you're neutral, you're siding with the abuser. And I want to go back to this initiative again, which, which we believe and why we are throwing out the weight of who we are, however little that is, and our organisation behind it, because we think it is a, a defining moment where you decide, turn the light on, or I don't turn the light on. So it is bigger, I believe, Gidon, than just that one night. Th thank you very much, Daphne. Um, I would also like to say that uh, the the Kirks here are my, our Root Source's first partner. And there's no way that I would be able to do this if I were just uh, some Jew in Israel asking Christians to do something with their church. This is, who are you? But the fact that Christian leaders are stepping on board and appealing to their followers, that is the only way this is going to happen. So I'm very grateful to you. And for all of you listeners out there, besides your own church that you can sign up, or your own home that you can sign up, or your business that you can sign up, or your Christian organization, whatever it would be, if you are or are very close to a leader, a Christian leader of who has a, a big circle of influence, just like the Kirks, then please, by all means, reach out to me and I will uh, engage with them and, and help them to be a partner in this project as well. I would love for there to be a dozen, two dozen uh, Christian thought leaders who will uh, reach, who, who will do, if you will, the, the marketing for this project, that I wouldn't have to do it as much as, uh, as I obviously have to do because I'm the only one doing it right now. But the, but all, much of that marketing that I, as an, a religious Jew in Israel, will do will be uh, a little bit of, <laughs> I wouldn't say neutrality, but, but uh, just spinning my wheels. I really need you, as a, a Christian leader, to step up on board and to partner with lightupthechurch.org. And before you wind up, Andrew, I just want to say, if you're listening and you're not a Christian, not a Jew, you can still light up your home and light up your organization. This isn't exclusive to Christians and Jews. This, this is open to anyone. So if you're listening, um, you go to light up the church, but hey, we're just grateful that you come on and you will light up where you are. Yeah. Good on. Thank you so much. It's been really good to initially hear some of your story and some of your heart. Uh, I think it really helps as well for people that then hear about the initiative to see where it is that Gidon's coming from. Why is he motivated to do something like this and really helps to then encourage people to come alongside you and what you're doing. So thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Yeah, thank you, Gidon. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. And I'm looking forward to coming back on your podcast, sirs. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for listening to this episode. Remember, if it inspired you, share it with others so we can see more people engaged in this community.